In this episode of The Bookshelf, John Graves is deep in a discussion about weather, a topic certainly way up there on the charts of country dweller concerns. As he put it, nearly all kinds of weather still matter out here in the sticks. He ended his dissertation saying that two tough recent winters just behind us did give us a taste of what Yankees have to take for granted year after year. Graves continues his essay now in this reading of his book, From a Limestone Ledge, published by the University of Texas Press. April and May can be magnificent, with birdsong and wildflowers and greenery gone crazy, and if good rains come in late August or September, as they often do, early fall can be a sort of verdant second spring before the frost turn it red and blue and yellow and crisp. Furthermore, at the risk of stirring up urban newcomers and people like my legal crony who dwells with Herr Dr. Fahrenheit at the back end of Plato's cave, I will note that even our vaunted summer heat is not all that bad to take, if you have to take it, at least not in the country. For the most part, it isn't humid heat. Breezes do blow. Nights away from sun-soaked radiant city pavements are nearly always cool for sleeping. And when the unrelenting 100-degree-plus days start, usually in July, the body makes one of those shifts of attunement of which it's capable. And within a short period, longer I concede, as the body in question accumulates years and a thicker trunk, such days are simply the way things are. One functions, as does the land, if it's given half a chance. Obviously, people dependent on weather need any prior knowledge they can get hold of concerning what the weather is likely to do. Up until not very long ago, a goodly part of traditional rustic wisdom consisted of saws and maxims on the subject, and in most neighborhoods, certain individuals were acknowledged to have superior talent in prediction, in reading barometric pressures through skin or sinuses or old wounds, and interpreting clouds and the veerings of wind as seers once did chicken guts, or more often a bit more usefully. Weather patterns being regional in character, the maxims varied with geography, so that the red sky at night that promised clear days ahead in one place might be viewed in another as a promise that all hell was getting ready to break loose. Seafaring communities, where a bad weather guest could get you drowned, were especially fertile in this sort of lore, on one Mediterranean island where I spent most of a year a quarter century ago and had a little sailboat, there existed a solid array of homely jingles in the local dialect of Catalan, most of them translatable to Spanish without a loss of rhyme, that detailed prospects for the weather and navigation as manifested in various winds and temperatures and cloud formations. They had probably been bandied there in one form or another since the Romans had run the place, and they worked. One that I remember went, Al norte joven o al sur viejo, no te fies et pellejo. Don't trust your hide to the young north wind or an old one from the south. And once when I flouted it and sailed forth with a French lady companion in a fresh, pleasant northerly breeze, we got a thorough wetting and were lucky to not have gotten worse. Some weather lore, especially over here where we haven't had since the Romans to distill it down to accuracy, seems to be based on wishful thinking. Wishful in terms of wanting to believe that either one can predict the weather, good or bad, or that desirable weather is really on its way. 
I used to have a country neighbor who, during droughts, would inevitably, when he saw a white rim of cloudiness on the eastern horizon, prognosticate a gully washer, a clod melter, a frog strangler within the week. He claimed to have had it in childhood from a grandfather, and might, I sometimes thought, have garbled it a bit while growing up, or maybe his ancestor had picked it up in Tennessee or somewhere else besides Texas. When rain failed to come, he would forget or ignore having foretold it, but out of 18 or 20 such predictions that I heard him make over a period of years, sheer mathematics caused the rain to show up a couple of times, whereupon he had himself a gloat. Hot Chihuahua, he said once, when all my fence water gaps on the creek and its branches had been washed out by the runoff from a five-inch slosher, and his own hay crop had been flattened and chewed ragged by the attendant hail. I told you granddaddy knowed how things worked. But many folks, he believes, do have some connection with what's happening in the realm of weather, and even sometimes with what's going to happen. I haven't had occasion to check out what the belly hair of certain mammals, the structure of wasp nests, the number and shape of mesquite pods, the depth of tortoises' burrows, and other such things may have to do with the severity of a coming winter, but I don't feel like sneering at them either, at least if they involve regional flora and fauna rather than exotics like the groundhog. In my own little bailiwick, I've been convinced of at least the partial and poetic accuracy of some native convictions, such as the one that the arrival of slate-colored juncos means that snow is in the offing. Called snowbirds locally for this reason, the trim little finches don't really arrive on such occasions, for they're thick if secretive in our cedar breaks and brush piles throughout the cold months. But during a spell of quiet, cloudy weather of the kind that often presages a midwinter front and possible snow, they do lose some of their habitual shyness and are seen in small flocks around yards and corrals, gobbling up all the seeds and spilled grain and other fuel they can find against a probable spell of lean pickings. There's a good bit of accuracy, too, in old-timers' belief that the best rains in our region come out of the southwest which at first blush seems improbable because that's the direction of the driest parts of Texas and Mexico. With the old ones, the theory was based on long observation, but it tallies with the fact that our main shots at helpful moisture come during spring and fall when cold fronts, arriving most often from somewhere on the compass pie slice between slightly north of west and, and slightly west of north, buttheads with wet gulf or Pacific air and set off storms. The storms after forming generally move along rather slowly in a northeasterly direction parallel with the triggering front rather than with it. Hence, if you see a thunderhead or a squall line of them to your approximate southwest, you do stand a fair chance of getting some rain, whereas if it shows up in some other quadrant, you'll more than likely have to watch it go elsewhere, wetting other people's pastures and fields. The rule doesn't always work especially for typical summer thunderstorms, which can shape up individually or in big cells out of unstable air and moisture in an otherwise clear sky, then zigzag around the landscape in just about any direction they fancy, defying all theories and maxims that I've heard. There is thus a larger component of frustration in watching one of these slide by only a couple of miles away, flashing and grumbling atop its thick column of rain, when with luck it might have caught you square and added up to a thousand bales or so of Sudan hay for the winter. 
Frustration is also a common result of paying too much attention to the workings of modern meteorology, as practically all of us country types do. Thorough and informed television weather reports and forecasts with maps and radar screens and those other wonders that have supplanted aching hip joints and hoary jingles as sources of prediction are, in my estimation, one of the more bearable elements of progress. If you set aside a tendency in most forecasters to ponder to a mass urban audience by bemoaning weekend rain or praising the chances for lovely dry weather when lousy wet weather is what the land is craving. Even the best of these soothsayers, though, can deal only in probabilities, and probabilities, as many a crapshooter knows to his sorrow, are nasty, tricky things. If you learn from the lips of Harold Taft of Channel 5 in Fort Worth, my own special hero among TV characters, that prospects are just right for a major and badly needed downpour, and then the downpour doesn't eventuate for reasons that may ultimately have to do with the way winds are playing around among the peaks of the Himalayas, you experience more than just plain workaday disappointment, and indeed may say some ugly things about hero Harold, not really meaning them. You'd have been much better off not watching his neat, swirl-marked, shaded maps or his satellite photos, not knowing that science was on your side, not getting your hopes up. Yet hope and worry about the weather have always been the lot of countrymen, and I doubt this will change much even in the unlikely event that meteorology becomes an exact science, making Harold and his counterparts heroes every time. For the truth is that doubt and worry and hope about large external forces are something we are geared for and probably need and sometimes even enjoy. I wouldn't swap the white and dark blue magnificence and promise and threat of a 60,000-foot-tall thunderhead on the southwestern horizon in May for two dozen of Plato's caves. I wouldn't even swap this damn drought. In Chapter 14, Graves switches to another topic. He calls this chapter Coronado's Stepchildren. The last really obsessed treasure hunter in our area died two or three years ago at a reasonably advanced age, never having found any of what he was looking for, as far as I've heard, but apparently having enjoyed the quest all the way. I hardly knew him except by sight, for I'm not a native, and obsessed people are hard to approach from outside the framework that produced them. He came around once, alighting from a lopsided old black pickup and fixing me with the small, close-set black eyes on either side of a large, pitted nose as we traded names and handshakes. Then he scuffed the toe of one work shoe in the gravel for a moment and announced that the Spanish had dug long galleries in the soft stratum of my hills across the creek, and after filling them with silver bullion, had plugged the entries and gone away never to return. I said... I didn't think there were any Spanish here in the first place this far north. The Comanches, hell yes, the Comanches, he said. That's why they left them Spaniards. Couldn't stick around here, and later on they couldn't come back. It weren't only the Indians, but the Mexican Revolution, too. Yes, I said. How'd you find out about it? Small, dark eyes gone darker with secrecy. I know lots of things they don't nobody else know. I, with diplomacy that seemed to be needed, I bet you do. Hell, I know where there's a great big old slab of ledge rock weighs maybe two ton, never been moved, and on the bottom side they stuff carved in that rock. There's an owl and a wolf and a woman, and she's blonde-headed. 
if it's never been moved, how'd you ever... But that was an overstep, and the secrecy and suspicion moved over his whole thin-seamed face. Yeah, he said, and with a disgusted sort of grumble, got back into the pickup and drove off. Other landowners seized his drift less skeptically, and some of them still have grubby documents that attest to agreements to split treasure found on such-and-such premises at a rate of 50-50 betwixt owner of said premises and finder of said treasure. There is a very noble hole a few miles from my place, six feet in diameter and fifteen deep through solid limestone, with a tunnel taking off horizontally from the bottom God knows how far— which this same fellow and an aging farmer totally hooked on his visions dug with picks and crowbars and dynamite, expecting to intersect some dream-certified chamber stuffed full of precious metals. The project collapsed when the farmer did likewise and was hauled off to an institution, but his source of inspiration just started another dig elsewhere. I was somehow rather shocked when I wandered over from the country road not long ago to inspect that hole again, and found a new owner had been using it for garbage disposal. Spanish galleries aside, our hilly neighborhood is an improbable sort of place to be looking for such loot. In the first place, its geology is sedimentary, with nearly level layers of limestone lying on top of one another, down to considerable depths, interrupted here and there by flatbeds of shale, and clay and water-bearing sand, with no trace of the sort of volcanic activity that forces ores, precious or otherwise, up within men's greedy reach. Hence, with little chance of lost mines and bullion, such as J. Frank Doby wrote about in Coronado's Children and elsewhere, legends and lore about treasure hereabouts are likely to tell of human hoardings squirreled away somewhere for posterity to find. But here one confronts the cold-water fact that human wealth has never been very probable around these parts either. Though the country itself was more productive when virgin a century or more ago, it wasn't even then the sort of land where surplus riches abounded to the point that their concealment was very often required. Nor in the millennia before white settlement were there any inhabitants equivalent in material glory to Aztecs, Incas, Egyptians, or those fierce Scythian tribesmen of the old world who buried kings and chieftains with heaped precious figurines and ornaments. There were only Tonkawas and other tough, impoverished hunting and gathering Indians eking out a living from mussels and roots and game and berries and decorating themselves, alive or dead, if at all, with bits of shell and bone and animal fangs. Certainly an occasional jar of silver dollars or paper money must have been secreted in a post hole or mortared beneath some limestone hearth after a good cotton crop or a small inheritance or the sale of a herd of cows. And I suppose it is in such events, rumored and exaggerated in families and crossroads communities, that most of such lore as we have had is based. It's fading now as the old natives die off and their progeny move away to seek another sort of treasure at construction projects and auto assembly plants, and it was seldom brooded widely since those who knew about such things generally had some hope of unearthing the trove for themselves. But it existed, and if you spent any time nosing about in abandoned country houses, as I used to in my more unfettered days, you'd sometimes find clear traces, not of loot, but at least of somebody else's search for it. I set down a tale in a book once about a land deal in this region 
in which the seller reserved ownership of an old shack where a bachelor uncle of his had lived for many years and died. Wasn't much of a structure, but the land's buyer, a friend of mine, thought that maybe it had sentimental value for the old fellow and he was going to move it elsewhere. <laughs> Not bloody likely. He camped there and dismantled it plank by plank and stone by stone, and when he was done, he went away and left the whole mess lying on the ground. He had been looking for something whose existence was vouched for in family talk, though what it was and whether he found it, none of us ever learned. Another legend attached to a sad little house occupied by a pair of spinsters up to the time of their deaths in the 40s. They were all that was left of a family that had earlier been rich in local terms, with 10 or 12 sections of land, but that had all been squandered by their father and brothers, and the old ladies finished out their lives in a small, barren corner of those once extensive holdings. One of them was paralyzed in the legs, the other maneuvered her from bed to table or chair or elsewhere by grasping her waist from behind and dragging her about the house. The heels of her shoes, it is said, were worn quite round by this procedure. Neighbors worked the pair's little rocky fields on shares, and they managed to live on that and a tiny bit of country dole money, and were supposed to have thousands of dollars hidden away somewhere. The house was blown to pieces by a tornado not long after they died, within a few months of each other, but people used to go there and dig, some of the ladder searchers bringing metal detectors and other such paraphernalia. One difficulty in taking it seriously lay in the obvious fact, commented on by a neighbor, that if they had had any money at all, you know damn well they'd have dug out enough to buy a wheelchair. Ain't nobody all that tight. I guess it's not really a paradox, though, that treasure legends seem to have flourished best in poor or desert places. For the people in such places need more acutely than anything else to believe in the possibility of windfall things that might suddenly and drastically alleviate their lot. Thus the champion treasure hunters of our continent are probably northern Mexicans and the rural Latins of Texas and the rest of the southwest who are descended from them. And their lore in this, as in other things, tends to be much richer than its Anglo equivalent. I knew an old Mexican midwife living in a little South Texas town who had second sight and liked to tell stories about these matters with waving, carving hands and with flashings and squintings and widenings of her very blue eyes. Another story, those eyes, the Canary Islands father shot by revolutionists, the ranch hand husband she married at 15 because he threatened to knife her if she didn't, and the rest... Anyway, she and her husband, when young, worked for a German rancher, a miser beyond compare. One night, the eve of some specific saint's day, but I forget which one, when she went out of their shack for something, she saw beneath a pear tree in the German's yard a flickering flame like that of a candle, but blue. When she went closer, it disappeared, but when she returned to her doorway and looked back toward the tree, the flame was there again. Next morning, she mentioned it to the rancher, and he paled, she did too when telling of it somehow, and said with anger, Nine, nine, it could not be, do not talk about it. And the day after that, there was a big hole under the pear tree with the imprint still in it of a jug or some other round container that had been removed. Two weeks later, saying there was not enough work to be done, even though sheep shearing was coming up, the German fired them. Which led to more stories, as Grandma Elizondo's tales were wont to do, 
and I wish I had written some of them down instead of having to rely on hazy recollection now. She was a power in the town, whose population was mainly Latin and Teutonic and heavily Catholic, and once, when a new priest made some motions toward ethnically segregated seating in the church, she showed up at his house. "'Come in, Mrs. Elizondo, come in,' he said. "'I can't,' said Grandma. "'I stink.' which finished off that particular bit of trouble. Another pear tree story has little to do with treasure, but it does illustrate the continuing sense of ownership that country people can have about old family places even after they've been sold into strangers' hands. This tree in question was an old one, large, with juicy sweet fruit, possessing an immunity to the fire blight that attracts nearly all good pear trees in Texas. The place it stood on lay lost back in the cedar of our hills, with no public roads passing by to bring in drifters. An observant city landowner, having bought that land and tacked it onto his adjoining ranch, noticed the tree loaded with green fruit in the first summer of his ownership, but when he came back in autumn, he found it already stripped, with only a few cull pears still hanging yellow on the branches or lying on the ground. The next year, the same thing happened. So the third year, he kept a close watch weekend by weekend, and when most of the fruit was ripe, he picked it for himself, feeling a certain moral glee in the four or five bushels he got. And the next fall after that, when he went to look, the tree had been chopped down. In Chapter 15, John Graves drifts into another topic which some listeners may find somewhat disgusting. He calls this tobacco without smoke, dippers. Snuff, the powdered form of tobacco, is not a centrally important commodity these days. On this side of the Atlantic, those people to whom it does still matter are found for the most part in our southern states, and they're mainly country and village traditionalists with a noble degree of built-in resistance to swinging, changing urban ways. Swinging, changing urbans in their turn, at least those who are even aware of Snuff's existence, tend to see it as broadly comic, and a reference to it in such company is nearly always good for a general cackling laugh. For humor, as we're told, is rooted in the sense of superiority and dipping, the taking of snuff by mouth in southern country style is a fairly easy thing to feel superior to for reasons that will perhaps emerge. At its social peak, snuff was not dipped, but snuffed, applied to the nasal mucosa by inhalation, and if you'd laughed at some of its users, you might not have laughed again on this side of the dueling ground. During two or three centuries in most civilized countries, including some unlikely ones such as China, snuffing was the most patrician way of using tobacco, though the other ways persisted strongly, and it was perhaps an American practitioner of one of them who sang somewhat sardonically, some it chew, some it smoke, some it up their nose do poke. But nasal snuffing fell from style in this country before the Civil War and has never been widely revived. The uproar about cigarette smoking that followed the Surgeon General's famous pronouncement of a few years back did inspire certain entrepreneurs to attempt the reintroduction of European high-grade snuff to these shores for such use, most American sorts intended for oral applications being far too rank and strong for the nose. 
Promotional campaigns were launched which bore down cannily on snuffing lore from the 18th century, a halcyon time for the great sternutatory, as someone called it, when Beau Brummel and other arbiters prescribed how jeweled boxes should be held while taking a perfumed pinch and looked down their aquiline, snuff-laden noses at vulgarians who smoked. Great names redolent of that era were invoked in the names of brands and scented flavors, Sarah Sidens, Dean Swift, Dr. Johnson. However, this praiseworthy, if rather snooty, effort to bypass the contemporary connotations of snuff in the U.S., where too many upwardly mobile individuals have clear but uneasy recollection of a country-bred grandmother sucking on a fat lipful of two-bros sweet while at ease in her rocking chair, seems not to have had great lasting impact except among a scattering of experimenters like me. The only lingering tradition of nasal snuffing that I've run across involved West Virginia lumberjacks of a generation or so ago, but a good many people from recently immigrated families have known older relatives who up their nose did poke, for in certain European areas and social groups, the habit is still entrenched. The brand of snuff that I like best for occasional use, unscented and stout but smooth, is manufactured in Belfast by the Scotch process. That means scorch, but that's a longish tale in itself. And it's kept in stock by a Washington, D.C. tobacconist for the convenience of some Irish-born priests who will deign to sniff no other. I'm told the snuff boxes in the U.S. Senate chambers are kept full as long practice prescribes, but are seldom used except by an occasional member with a bad, foggy hangover, which would indicate that the snuff therein patriotically is American, for while it may be rank, its jolt when inhaled is guaranteed to wake you up. It's likely that very few of you have ever heard a treatise on snuff, or for that matter, on chewing tobacco. But here we are in John Graves' book about his rural Texas ranch called Hardscrabble. Bits and pieces of his recollections of that life and of some of the country people he interacted with along the way. There's more to come of his thoughts about smokeless tobacco, perhaps even more than you really ever wanted to know. Join us next time on The Bookshelf, a Spokane Public Radio production for which Vern Windham is executive producer. I'm Tom Bacon. Music